you will, turn with me to John chapter 1. John chapter 1, we'll be reading verse 1, and then I'm going to skip down to verse 14 through 18. John chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. In verse 14, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God, who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Let me pray. Father, we ask that as we consider your word and most specifically the person of your Son, second member of, of our triune Lord, as we consider who he is, as your eternally begotten Son and, and as the Son who took on humanity and became our Savior and Lord. We pray, Father, that you would illumine our minds to understand your word. You cause our hearts to love him more. That you would be honored in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today we continue our our sixth week in our series on our triune Lord. Um, this doctor in the Doctrine of the Trinity, theologian Scott Swain, is called the most sublime truth of the Christian faith and its supreme treasure. And as we continue our series, we're still looking at who our triune Lord is from the Apostle John. John has written the Gospel of John, the letters of John, and the book of Revelation. And we're looking at who John says our triune Lord is. Last week we focused on the Father, this week on the Son, and next week on the Holy Spirit. Now I had written a whole introduction that was engaging and enthralling, interesting, would have moved you, and I tore it out because it actually wasn't very good and was just taking up extra time. So we're just going to jump right into the text. This week we're going to consider the person of the Son, And we have two major points that I want you to hear as we consider the person of the Son. The first is the person of the Son. Who is he? That's the first major point. Who is the Son? Now, there will be two sub-points underneath that, okay? But the person of the Son, who is he? And the second is, how do we commune with the Son? How do we have fellowship with him? See, these are really the two questions that we want to get at as Christians, isn't it? As followers of Christ, as those who believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, and who have life in his name. Who is the Son? And how do we fellowship with him? How do we fellowship with him? So we're going to look at that. So let's look at the first point, the person of the Son. Who is the Son? As I've stated before, the singular name of God as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is revealed to us in the missions of the Son and the Holy Spirit. We're baptized in that singular name, the name of the Father and of the Son 
and of the Holy Spirit. And last week, I addressed the fact that the Father is God and the Son is God, yet there's one God, one being, one substance. And then I addressed who the Father is. He is the eternal Father who eternally begets the Son and who eternally spirates, breathes out the Spirit. He is the eternal Father who eternally loves the Son. He is the eternally, eternal Father who in his eternally, excuse me, eternal love has elected us in the Son. But today, we're addressing who the Son is. Who is he? What do we learn about him? What do we learn about who the Son is in his mission? And I want to address two subpoints. I said, or two truths regarding who the Son is that we learn about the Son from his mission. Now, I can say much more than what I'm going to say this morning, but I'm, I'm going to narrow it down to two things. So here's the first subpoint under who is the Son. Here's what it is. He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. Hear that first subpoint. Who is the Son? He is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. He is also eternally God. Look at John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word. In other words, the Word is eternal. He is being referenced here as the Creator, as you will see in verse 3. He is the eternal Creator, this Word. And the Word was with God. So there's a distinction between the Word and God, and here God is used as a personal name for the Father, which we'll see addressed later when we get to verse 14 and following. The Word is with Him. So He's distinct. And the Word was God. In other words, He's the same quality of God, the same substance. That's who He is. He is God and He is with God. He was with, it was in the beginning, with God. Now look at verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. That doesn't mean He just took on a body. It means He became a human. Body and soul. He's a full human. He's our representative. So he became flesh and he did what? He dwelt among us. He tabernacled among us. In other words, this is taking us back to the Old Testament sense that when God is with his people, he tabernacles with them. He dwells with them in the tabernacle or the temple. And so Jesus is God in human dwelling with us. And we have seen his glory. Glory, now notice this, we're going to get personal about who this word is. Because the word word is somewhat impersonal, isn't it? So we're going to get personal about him. We're going to hear him named. Not as to an attribute, like he's loving or holy or whatever, but as to his personal relation. He is the son And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son, or I think better translated, the only begotten Son. In fact, I think it's a mistake that the English Standard Version took out the word begotten. Historically, this text has been translated begotten, only begotten Son. It's this Greek word monogenes, which speaks of begetting. Um, In the 20th century, scholars began to say, well, it doesn't mean begottenness or only begotten. It means only unique Son, Um, So they'll translate it, his only son, or if you look down at verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the 
the only God, or instead of the only begotten God, this unique Son of God, um, instead of saying the only begotten. However, uh, recent scholarship has overturned that former consensus that happened in the 20th century, and now everybody's saying we need to go back to only begotten. So, lo and behold, for 19 centuries, the church got it right, and the 20th century didn't actually fix it. Anyway, we always think that the most modern thing fixes previous errors, because of course, as time goes on, just things just get better, right? Anyway, but he is the eternally begotten Son of the Father. He is also eternally God. Look at what it says, verse 18, no one has ever seen God, the only begotten God who is at the Father's side. In other words, his, his, like his head is on the Father's breast, he's in intimacy with the Father, the Son in intimacy with the Father, he has made him known. He is God who is with the Father, who is making the Father known, revealing him to you. That's why in John 1, he'll be called the light of the world, uh, the light, and later on the light of the world. He reveals the Father. Tells you who he is. He can because he's his son. He's his image. The exact imprint of his nature. The radiance of the glory of God. So he shows you who the Father is. In other words, he's always been the only begotten Son of the Father from eternity. The Father and the Son have eternally been Father and Son. God is eternally Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and I'll deal with the Holy Spirit next week. Eternally. Yet we can also say the Father is the eternal source of the Son and the Spirit, but the Father did not will to beget the Son. Now I'm going to ask you to do some heavy lifting. You ready? The Father did not will to beget the Son. It wasn't like there's this deity who willed one day to become a father and have a son. The Son was not a potential person whom the Father decided to make actual. There is no potential in God. You guys ever think about that? Your children might have potential. God does not have any potential. He is. He never becomes anything. He does not realize his potential. He is. The Father eternally begat the Son from his infinite plenty and fruitfulness as the Father of the Son. He has been eternally begetting the Son. He's eternally Father and Son. You might go, what do I do with that? How do I even conceive of that? He's begotten and not made is what the creedal language says. The Father didn't make him. He didn't will him. He is eternally begotten from him. Gregory of Nazianzus, one of the Cappadocian fathers, speaks to the eternal begottenness of the Son. And, and here's what he says. I think it's super helpful. He's a preacher first, and here's what he says. How has the Son been begotten? God's begetting ought to have the tribute of our reverent silence. The important point is for you to learn that he has been begotten. As to the way it happens, we shall not concede that even the angels, much less you, know that. Shall I tell you the way? It is a way known only to the begetting Father and the begotten Son. Anything beyond this fact is hidden by a cloud and escapes your dull vision. Did you, did you hear his answer? 
The Father is the begetter eternally. The Son is the eternally begotten. How do I explain that? How did that happen? We can't possibly know. We just know the Scripture tells us, and so we believe the Scripture. Thomas Aquinas, one of the great thinkers in the history of the church, also teaches us how to approach these kind of eternal, infinite matters that we just can't wrap our minds around. God reveals them, but we have no idea how to fully explain them or comprehend them, and that's, that's good. Here's what he says. It is not permitted to scrutinize the mysteries on high with the intention of comprehending them. You believe the incomprehensible because God has said it so. Now, with that said, the Gospel of John does make clear that the eternally begotten Son and the Father are one being, yet distinct persons. John also makes it clear that the, the Son eternally receives his divine being from the Father. As water springs forth from a fountain, if you will. Perhaps another way to say it is to say this, that it is the Son's way of being God in eternity as the Son who is eternally begotten from the Father. That's his way of being God. The eternally begotten Son from the Father. He is the one who is begotten by the Father, who receives from the Father, who is sent by the Father. Now the Father's way of being God is as the Father who begets the Son, who gives the Son and sends the Son. The Son is eternally one with, yet equal to, his Father, yet he is from the Father, he receives from the Father, he's sent by the Father. The Son shares common properties with the Father because they're one undivided God, one substance, one being. They are both eternal, self-existent, holy, loving, merciful, gracious, kind, just, yet one. They do not become something they were not. They have eternally been one God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who love one another from eternity. That's a lot to get in your mind, isn't it? But if you notice, I'm basically saying the same thing over and over and over again in different ways. Because I want it to cement in your head. The Son does what the Father does as the one sent by the Father. The Son speaks what the Father speaks as the word of the Father. The Son has everything he has from the Father. They are one, yet distinct persons. Now, I don't have time to exegete all of the texts in John that address that. And I'm only going to select a few out of many. But I, I want you to listen. I want you to listen for some things. Here's what I want you to listen for as we read these texts that we're going to look at in John. Listen for language of the Son being sent. Hear that? He's being sent. Listen for language of the Son being given what the Father has. Listen for language of the Son only speaking what the Father speaks or what he hears from the Father. Listen for language of the Son only doing the works the Father does. Or listen for language of the, fa of the Son being one with the Father. So look at John chapter 3 and verse 34. John chapter 3 and verse 34. For he, that, this is the Son, whom God has sent, you hear that? He sent, utters the words of God. He, this being, making a distinction here, God being the personal name here for the Father again, he's being named that way just as God. He, whom God, the Father, if you will, sent, has sent, that's the Son, utters the words of God, for he gives the Spirit without measure. The Father loves the Son and has given all things into his hand. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. See, 
He, the Father, sent the Son, and the Son utters the words of God. The Father loves the Son and has given all things to the Son. This is talking about an eternal transaction, a way of being. Now look at John chapter 5 and verse 19. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him, so that you may marvel." You'll notice that if you go through the Gospel of John, every time he does great works, it's always for the sake of the disciples, not not for Jesus' sake. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. He does what the Father does because he's one being with the Father. The Father judges no one but has given all judgment to the Son that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. So you believe in Jesus, you have eternal life. You believe in the Father who sent the Son, you have eternal life. Because you can't believe in one and fail to believe in the other. He does not come in a judgment, but is passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, verse 25, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, in other words, he isn't given life. He isn't, nothing's given him. He's, he's ase. You guys know what that means? That sounds like I'm talking like foghorn leghorn, doesn't it? If you know who he is, if you don't, sorry. But ase, right? Okay. Ah, say, ah is a negation of say. He, 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 doesn't, he, he doesn't have his existence from something. He's self-existence. He's of himself. He isn't contingent. He has no need. He has life in himself because he is life. We are existing from him. We come from him in the sense that he gives life to us. We're dependent. We're contingent. He is self-existent. He has no beginning and no end. He is. He has no dependency. As the Father has life in himself, so he is granted or given the Son also to have life in himself. It's an interesting text, isn't it? Because the Son has life in himself as given from the Father. Yet if he has it in himself... That means he's eternally had it. He is also self-existent. He is himself life. Yet it's a givenness of life from the Father. In other words, what I'm speaking about is the way the Son as a person is God and the way the Father as a person is God. The Father eternally begets the Son. He gives to the Son. The Son is eternally begotten and he receives. Yet they're both one God. Look what he goes on to say. For as the Father's life in himself, so he's granted the Son to also live life in himself, and he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. 
In other words, he has authority to execute judgment. Only God has authority to execute judgment, yet now Jesus has authority to execute judgment. Now go down to verse 30. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Go to verse 36. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, speaking of John the Baptist, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness with, about me that the Father has sent me. Hear this language? Does what the Father does. He speaks what the Father speaks. He's sent from the Father. Everything he has, he's received from the Father. The Father gives to him. Chapter 10, John chapter 10. I'm skipping over so much. But John chapter 10 and verse 25. Jesus answered them, these folks who were criticizing him, he answered them and asking him, if you're the Christ, really tell us plainly. Answer them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you're not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Now look what he goes on to say. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all, and no one's able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. So what is it? Can you not be snatched from the Son's hand, or can you not be snatched from the Father's hand? Yes. Why is that? Look at the next verse. I and the Father are one. Not one person. He's just distinguished two persons there, hasn't he? I and the Father. Yet we're one. We're one being, but we're not one person. Chapter 13, verse 1. This beginning of what is really this kind of upper room discourse this place in which Jesus teaches them in the last week of his life, really here the last night of his life in chapter 13. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, notice he's come from the Father and he's returning to the Father, which is good news for us because he's the way to the Father. He's come from the Father, he's returning to the Father, it says his hour had come to depart out of this world of the Father. He's speaking there of the hour of his glory, the hour of the cross, in which he becomes our sin bearer, having loved his own. Look what it says about Jesus with regard to you. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. I could preach a whole sermon just on that. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. Did you hear the description of him? Look, look at John chapter 17. Again, I'm going to be in John 14 largely next week, but that whole chapter would secure what I'm getting after, but I'm just going to skip ahead. John 17 and verse 1. When Jesus said spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. In other words, speaking about the end of his life, 
Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. In other words, they're mutually glorifying one another. Now we know in Isaiah that God says, my glory I'm God and my glory I give to no other. So they're both God, yet there are not two gods, but one God. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. Yet they both receive glory. Glorify your son, that the same may glorify you. Since you have given him, Father's given the son, authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you've given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, that's speaking of the Father, and Jesus Christ, whom you sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory I had with you before the world existed. Verse 24, Father, I desire that they also, whom you've given me, may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you love me before the foundation of the world. So the Father and the Son are two distinct and co-equal persons, yet one being. They share common properties, They say the same things, they do the same things, yet they're distinct persons. Now, an objection is always lodged here. You want to know what the objection is? Besides, wow, that's really confusing and it makes my head hurt, okay? That's not really an objection, that's a complaint. An objection is always lodged here, and it's this. What about a text like John 14, 28? So turn there. What about a text like John 14, 28? This is one example, incidentally, I could point to others. I just picked this one. John 14, 28, Jesus says this. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. Did you hear that? The Father is greater than I. Jesus has already said that the Son and the Father are one. But here, that was in John chapter 10, verse 30, if you remember. But here, Jesus says the Father is greater than I. Further, we read of Jesus speaking in multiple passages of his obedience to the Father, his submission to the Father. So how can the Father and the Son be one substance yet two distinct persons, equal in power and glory, while Jesus is at the same time submitting to and obeying the Father who he admits is greater than himself. Is Jesus contradicting himself? I mean, how do we understand this? Well, I think John chapter 1 helps us understand it. So go back to chapter 1. And I think it's going to provide our hermeneutic you know what I mean by a hermeneutic? Our way of reading the Bible. Our method of approaching, understanding how to read the rest of the gospel. In other words, the prologue for the gospel of John is setting up for us how to understand the rest of the gospel. And so here's the prologue, what it's telling us about how to read this book. Look at verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was what? God. Now look at verse 14, and the word became flesh, that's man, and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only begotten son from the father, full of grace and truth. In other words, the word is God, and the word is incarnate as man. 
So when we come to reading texts about Jesus, Jesus being the incarnate word, the God-man, we need to read those texts in a manner appropriate to who he is. Jesus is fully God and fully man. Jesus has two natures united together in one person. He is the eternal son of God, and he is the human son of Mary. He is, as Paul says in Philippians 2, in very nature God, and yet he has taken to himself the nature of man. But these two natures are not confused or changed. These are two distinct natures, yet united together in one person without confusion or change the natures, but without being able to divide up the natures into two persons. So in other words, when we come to understanding the Gospel of John, we have to understand the Christology, the doctrine of Christ that's set up by John in the very first chapter in his prologue, that he is not, Jesus is not just man, he's God, and he's not just God, he's man. He is the God-man. And we have to read the Gospel of John through that understanding. Okay, you might go, wow, Christology is just as hard as Trinitarianism. Yes, it is. It is. It's exactly right. It's as much a divine mystery. It's why so many heresies have arisen over the years, and it's why groups and groups of pastors have had to meet together through the years to determine what do we say are the boundaries of what the Bible is teaching about Jesus or the Bible's teaching about the Trinity and what is outside of the boundaries. In other words, what accounts for the truth of what the Bible's saying about him and what is outside of that, and they put together what we call creeds. They didn't put them together because they thought, we need to make up a doctrine about God. Let's, let's get together our, you know, our most creative folks. They're not millennials, right? Okay? Let's get together our most creative folks and just invent a doctrine of Jesus and write it down. That's not what they're doing. What are they doing? Pastors are arising who are starting to say things like, well, Jesus is not, as, is not equal to the Father, He's, he's, he's like him in substance, but he's not the same. They're not one being, they're two separate beings. He's eternally submitting to him. And they say, wait a minute, you're misreading the text. We've got to get together and talk about the fact that, that pastor is out of bounds and call him to repentance, and if he doesn't repent, to call him a heretic. And so they came up with creeds, and one of the creeds I want to put up for you was read by Russell this morning is the Chalcedonian Creed. We then, following the Holy Fathers, look what they wrote. We then, following the Holy Fathers, in other words, following the tradition of the church, what we've always taught about the Bible, what well, we've always proclaimed about Jesus. We then, following the Holy Fathers, all with one consent, teach men to confess one and the same Son, our Lord Jesus Christ. Now look what they say about him. The same, perfect in Godhead, and also perfect in manhood. Truly God and truly man. Notice they just said the same thing like twice, right? They're being very clear. Of a reasonable or rational soul and body consubstantial or coessential with the Father according to Godhead and consubstantial with us according to the manhood. In all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages of the Father according to the Godhead. And in these latter days, for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood. In other words, She's the mother of God in the sense that she gave birth to the God-man, but notice she gave birth to the God-man according to the manhood. That's what he gets from her. One and the same Christ, Son, Lord, 
only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures. Now notice, inconfusedly. In other words, don't confuse the natures. Unchangeably, don't make one change the other. But yet, indivisibly, don't split them apart. Inseparably, don't separate them. The distinction of natures being by no means taken away by the union, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided into two persons, but one and the same Son and only begotten, God the Word, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the prophets from the beginning have declared concerning him, and the Lord Jesus Christ himself has taught us, and the creed of the Holy Fathers has handed down to us. Now you might say, well, isn't that all a bit much? Isn't that all a bit much? I mean, can't, can't we just say, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. I, I, but I, I want you to stop and consider, Jesus is not a word that you get to fill with meaning. Jesus is a historical person who made historical claims. I know it's the zeitgeist of our day, sort of the spirit of our age, to be spiritual and not religious. You know what that generally means. That means my personal experience gets to define what's true about God. And I get to claim whatever I want to claim on the basis of personal experience because some external religious authority doesn't get to dictate to me what's true. I get to do that internally. That's what we mean. And so then we say, well, I love Jesus. I believe in Jesus. It doesn't matter that my Jesus isn't the Jesus of the Bible, isn't the Jesus the church has confessed for the last two millennia. He's the one I love and I believe in. But he's, he's a historical person, folks. I want you to understand this. Your spiritual experience is entirely meaningless if it is not in line with the historical revelation of who Jesus is. I know that's pretty countercultural, but I feel a bit like, like today people are, they, they, they treat God, their relationship to God, like some sort of um, creeper treats his relationship toward a female, right? We're in a relationship together. And she's like, I don't know you. We're not in a relationship. Oh, yeah. We are. Right? You only have a personal relationship with God through the person of Jesus Christ by the Spirit, the one who's been revealed in Scripture. The question is not whether you believe or how sincerely you believe. The question is whether you believe in the only true God and Jesus Christ whom he sent. Is the object of your faith true, not is the experience of your faith sincere? Now, am I saying sincerity is bad? No, I'm not saying sincerity is bad. Am I saying faith is bad? Not at all. I'm saying it's irrelevant if it doesn't have the proper object. If it's not set on the triune Lord. And the truth of who Jesus Christ is affects our hermeneutic, how we read the Bible. So at times we hear Jesus speak of himself in accord with his humanity as a form of a servant. And at times we hear Jesus speak of himself in accord with his divinity or in his form as God. 
St. Augustine actually borrowed from Paul in Philippians 2 and argued, for there was, listen to what he says, for there was accession of a servant form, or, or sort of like an, an adding of a servant form, the humanity, with no recession or no reducing loss of the divine. In the assumption of the one, there was no consumption of the other. In other words, they don't end each other when they come together. Right? The two natures become one person. In reference to the one, he says this, the father is greater than I. But because of the other, he says, I and my father are one. Augustine applies it further by saying this, who is then he who made the world? Christ Jesus, but in the form of God. Who is it that was crucified under Pontius Pilate? Christ Jesus, but in the form of a servant. So the Son is eternally the begotten Son of the Father, one in substance with the Father, substance with the Father yet a distinct and co-equal person, even after the incarnation. He is eternally the Son of the Father. Now that leads to our second point that we learn about subpoint, really, that we learn about Jesus and his mission. Here's what it is. He is the eternal son sent on mission to purchase grace for us. Did you hear that? The first part's the heavy lifting. This part you already resonate with. He is the eternal son sent on mission to purchase grace for us so we might be adopted as sons of the Father. Look at John chapter 1 again and verse 9. John chapter 1 and verse 9. The true light, which enlightens everyone, was coming into the world. See, in other words, he is the light, the revelation of God, the radiance of the glory of God, Hebrews 1 will tell us. He's come into the world to reveal the truth. He is the truth. And look at verse 12. And the people rejected him when he came and told them the truth, but look at verse 12. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he, be, he gave the right to become children of God. In other words, he came to give us a new birth, to give us new life, which is life, a life of being adopted as children of the Father. He came to reveal the truth to us. He came as the revelation of the truth, and he came as the life, or, if you will, the light and the life, as John says here. He is the, reveal, the revealing of the glory of God, and he is the one who saves you and brings you adoption. That's what he came to do. Look at John 1.16. And from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. In this incarnate word, this God-man, the Son of the Father in human flesh, in him we receive grace upon grace. And he purchases that grace for us so that it might be ours. Here, what's he come to do? Why did, the son, why did the Father send the Son? And why did the Son come? To purchase grace for us. So that we might be adopted as the children of God. Look at John 1.29 right after the baptism scene. Verse 29, the next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In other words, John the Baptist points at Jesus and says, he is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He has come 
to be the wrath bearer for us, to atone for our sins, to pay for them. He came to purchase grace for us. He's the only one who can purchase grace greater than all your sin because he is the only one who is the God-man. He's the only one who can represent you because he is man. He is the only one who can purchase infinite grace for you because he is God. He came to atone for our sins on the cross. This is what he was sent to do, purchase grace. Look at John 3.16. I know I keep coming back to this text, and you're all very familiar with it, but I want you to hear it. For God so loved the world that he gave his, by the way, only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. In other words, the Father sent the Son so that you might have eternal life in him because he loves you. The Son came on mission to purchase grace for you. Life is in Christ because he does the Father's will. As he says, he's not my will. That's him speaking according to the form of the servant or, the, or man. Not my will, Father, but, but thy will be done. And he drinks the bitter cup of God's wrath for us at the cross by becoming the curse for us on the cross. That's why Jesus is the only way to the Father. Hear what happens when you become a pluralist? When you become a pluralist, when you become a pluralist, think of what you're saying about the Father sending his divine Son to die on your behalf. You're saying it doesn't matter, it's irrelevant. There are other ways. I know the Father gave his divine Son, but what's the big deal? Can't you get there other ways? It's blasphemy to be a pluralist. You're blaspheming the only name of the Son of the Father. You're blaspheming the name of the Father who loved you and sent you for him. Sent him for you, sorry. That's a big screw up. Sent him for you. (laughs) Blaspheming his name. He is the only way to the Father. The Son has life in Himself and came to give us life, which is fellowship with Him and with the Father. The Son, in purchasing grace for us, has united us in communion or fellowship with Himself and with the Father. Look at John, First John, sorry, chapter one. First John, look there, almost at the end of your Bibles, just a few books before Revelation. First John, chapter one and verse one. Same author, speaking of Jesus, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In other words, the God-man, the word who became flesh, the one who has life in himself, who we touched and saw and heard speak. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life, which was with the Father, eternal Son of God, and was made manifest to us, taking on human flesh. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too, why? Why do they proclaim Jesus? So that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed, listen, wouldn't you have fellowship with us? Why? Because we're great guys, and you would never have fellowship like you would with us. No. You have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. 
And we are writing these things to you so our joy might be complete or maybe complete. It's complete as you fellowship with us as we fellowship with the Father and the Son. But how do we fellowship with the Son? How do we commune with him? And that leads to the final point I'm going to make, and this is really the shortest part of the sermon. It's the application portion. How do we commune with the Son? Look first at 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5. And look at verse 11. And this is the testimony that God gave us eternal life. And this life is in his Son. Whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. I write these things to you that you who believe in the name of the Son of God, to, the, to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, sorry, that you may know that you have eternal life. You see, it's, it's very simple. How, how do we commune with the Son? We trust him. We trust him. We trust in Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, our Savior and Lord, and we see that, it, that in him and in his work for us is grace upon grace, grace greater than all our sin. We trust that his grace is enough, not by looking to grace as some substance out there that we try to acquire, but by trusting that grace is found in Christ. Christ and his work are sufficient grace for us. Even the best of our good works. I want you to hear this. You do good works. It's necessary you do good works as those who believe. You've been changed by the Holy Spirit. You do good works. But the good works, even the best of them, do not add any grace to you. They're only evidences and fruit of the fact that you have received grace upon grace in Christ through faith. And we look to him and we lean our weary heads upon his breast, and we find in him our rest. And this faith is a gift of the Holy Spirit. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit, through which the Holy Spirit unites us to Christ and adopts us as sons of the Father. But our Holy Spirit faith, I want you to hear this, our Holy Spirit gifted faith can be improved upon through the Holy Spirit given means of grace. Now, I didn't say the object of our faith can be improved upon. Did you hear that? I didn't see the, say the gifts that we receive through our faith can be improved upon. All those are in Christ. He can't be improved upon. I said that our actual faith can be improved upon through the means of grace given by the Spirit. The Spirit's the one who gave it to you, and the Spirit's the one who can improve it or strengthen your faith, and he strengthens it through the means of grace. What are those? Word and sacrament. In other words, the word you hear spoken to you and the word you see visibly in baptism in the Lord's Supper. That's how it's improved upon. Now, how does that word come to you? Through preaching, through reading, through hearing it read, through singing songs, hymns, and spiritual songs, through prayer. It comes to you as we speak the truth to one another in love. It comes a myriad of ways, but the word... The Word is a means of grace through which the Spirit strengthens your faith. Even when we pray, we're praying the Word, aren't we? That's what it means to pray in Jesus' name. What Jesus means when he says, pray in my name, is not and ask whatever you want. 
He means you're asking things in line with the will of God and his word. He isn't saying, well, Jesus, um, I would like there to be 16 gods, 14 of whom serve me. I ask it in your name. I mean, that's ridiculous, isn't it? They just ask for whatever you want, i.e., all the desires of your wicked heart. And just say Jesus' name at the end like a magic formula and you get it. You're praying the word. You want what he wants because the spirit is working in you to give you the desires that God has for you, which he lays out in his word. And so you pray his word back to him as a means of grace. And I want to speak of our approach to it because in the right use of the means of grace, we don't want to just jump through hoops. It isn't like get up in the morning and read three chapters and check that box and then you know, say a little prayer and check that box and go to church on Sunday and check that box. Rather, we want the preaching of the word, the singing of the word, the visible word and the sacraments to lead us to feasting upon, to meditating upon who Christ is. In communing with the Son, with Jesus our Lord and Savior, John Owen, who wrote the book Communion with God, which is volume two in the Banner of Truth series. If you want to try to read it, it's not easy, <laughs> worthwhile. But you have to read him a couple of times before you get him. But look what he says. As he's meditating on the perfections of Christ, on Christ's loveliness, he speaks of his practice of doing that like a bride thinking about the loveliness of her groom. And he approaches it in a comparative manner. So here's what he says. He says that after he has reckoned up some of the perfections, this is his, his quote, reckoned up some of the perfections of the creatures, things of most value and price and usefulness, beauty and glory here below, he then says, and I quote, he compares them, he says this, and I quote, to some of the excellencies of my beloved. He goes on to say, I can carry things no higher. I find nothing better or more desirable than to shadow, to shadow out and to present his loveliness and desirableness. But alas, all this comes short of his perfections, beauty, and comeliness. He is all holy to be desired to be beloved. In other words, I take the greatest things in God's creation and I think about them and then I compare them to him and his loveliness and they don't even compare. Thus he breaks into praise of the loveliness of Christ. Listen to what meditation on Christ sounds like. Something we ought to recapture, contemplation. As he breaks into praise, he says this, Christ is lovely in his person, in the glorious all-sufficiency of his deity, gracious purity, and holiness in humanity, authority and majesty, love and power. He is lovely in his birth and incarnation. When he was rich, for our sakes becoming poor, taking part of flesh and blood because we partook of the same, being made of a woman that for us he might be made under the law even for our sakes. Christ is lovely in the whole course of his life and the more than even than, excuse me, angelical holiness and obedience which in the depth of poverty and persecution he exercised therein, doing good, receiving evil, blessing and being cursed, reviled, reproached all his days. He is lovely in his death, yea, therein most lovely to sinners, never more glorious and desirable than when he came broken, dead from the cross. Then had he carried all our sins into a land of forgetfulness. Then had he made peace and reconciliation for us. Then had he procured life and immortality for us. He is lovely in his whole employment or his work. 
in his great undertaking, in his life, death, resurrection, ascension, being a mediator between God and us to recover the glory of God's justice and to save our souls, to bring us to an enjoyment of God who were set at such an infinite distance from him by our sin. He is lovely in the glory and majesty wherewith he is crowned. Now he is set down at the right hand of the majesty on high, where though he be terrible to his enemies, yet he is full of mercy, love, and compassion toward his beloved. He is lovely in all the supplies of his grace and consolations, in all the dispensations of his Holy Spirit, whereof his saints are made partakers. He is lovely in his all the tender care and power and wisdom which he exercises in the protection and safeguarding and delivery of his church and people in the midst of all oppositions and persecutions whereunto they're exposed. He is lovely in all his ordinances and the whole of that spiritually glorious worship which he has appointed to his people, whereby they draw near and have communion with him and his Father. He is lovely and glorious in the vengeance he takes and will finally execute upon the stubborn enemies of himself and his people. He is lovely in the pardon he hath purchased and does dispense. In the reconciliation he has established, in the grace he communicates, in the consolations he does administer, in the peace and joy he gives his saints, in his assured preservation of them unto glory. What shall I say? There is no end of his excellencies and desirableness. He is altogether lovely. This is our beloved, and this is our friend, O daughters of Jerusalem. Amen. May we meditate on Christ in such a way. Father, we are thankful for you giving, sending your altogether glorious and lovely Son for us. We are thankful that you have given him for us and that you gave him for us unto death so that he might purchase grace for us. We're thankful that he came and lived under the law in our place, that he took on the humiliation of humanity. And that he went to the cross. He was obedient to you to death on the cross where he paid for our sins. We're thankful that he resurrected from the dead and ascended to your right hand, returning to you, Father, as the first fruits of the resurrection, thus assuring that by being united to him through faith, by the Spirit, we would be brought back to you as well. We would be resurrected and have new life in him. Father, we confess we can't possibly wrap our minds around the mystery of the Trinity, nor of the God-man, Jesus Christ, but we can believe what your word has said and we can worship the incomprehensible. We pray that we would learn to not only trust in Christ, but as your spirit works through the means of grace to improve our faith, to strengthen our faith in him, we pray that we would learn to meditate upon him, to think of all who he is, to give great glory to him, to rejoice in him. For we know that at the name of Jesus, every, every knee will bow 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God our Father. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.